0: Judges chapter 18, in verse 1 this morning, well, Samuel writes, we think it's Samuel, it's most likely Samuel who wrote the book of Judges, and, and he writes in verse 1, in those days there was no king in, of Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in, for until that day, an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. Let me remind you that these last few chapters of the book of Judges, beginning in chapter 17, running through chapter 21, these last handful of chapters, all happened across this time, across this 400 year period of the Judges. This is not after the life of Samson, who we finished in chapter 16, but this now is going back. And Samuel is giving us snapshots and pictures, and we began our study last week into this final section, this appendix, if you will, of the book of Judges. The last few chapters that deal... With the big picture of the state of Israel, not the state of Israel as in the nation, but the state of Israel as in the, the way things were during these dark days, and that picture is summed up in one word that we talked about last week, and that is apostasy. Judges 17.6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And we talked about last week that apostasy is simply a falling away. It's rebellion. It's revolt. It's turning from what you know to be the truth. We're not talking about typical rebellion from someone who is not a Christian, is not a believer in God, doesn't really know the Lord, and is living a rebellious life. We're talking about a falling from what you know. A falling away from what is the truth, from what you believe, from a relationship that you have. Apostasy is falling away from the Lord. And we saw this last week, and we see this in the people of Israel across this 400 year period called the Times of the Judges. Last week we saw it was exemplified in three things which were apparent. In the story of this man named Micah, Micah in chapter 17, who was of the tribe of Ephraim, and Micah went out and got himself a priest. A Levite pulled him into his house to be kind of his priest over his house and of his household gods that he had made for himself, his idols. And we saw last week that there was a religious syncretism going on. I had several people ask me afterwards, how do you spell syncretism? (laughs) S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M, syncretism. And all it means is the blending of multiple beliefs. Remember that Israel didn't cast out their belief in God. They didn't completely reject God. They just included with their faith in God all the faith in different gods and idols that were in the land. They included paganism with the faith that they already had. They blended it. Religious syncretism. It's designer religion. And it is what I fear we see an awful lot of going on even in the church today. It's personal experience over godly obedience. Nothing wrong with experience. We should experience something When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ We should have an emotional reaction To what He did on the cross To the love He has for us To the faithfulness He shows us every day When we say His mercies are new every morning That should evoke in us an experience of joy We should have an experience Of His Holy Spirit in our lives Knowing the power that is His That He gives For the service of the brothers and sisters in the church For witnessing The gifts of the Spirit. We should have those personal experiences. But when the personal experiences become more important than the obedience to God, things are out of whack. Personal experience over godly obedience, that's religious syncretism, blending in those things that make me feel or experience something that excites me. Other than simply obeying the Lord even when I'm not excited. And I'll tell you, there are times in walking with the Lord that is not exciting. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be every moment of the day. Religious syncretism. We talked about moral relativism. That is the bending of the truth to suit our own needs. And it's summed up in that verse that every man did what was right in his own eyes. Is that not the definition of America? Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. I don't care about your your rights are fine as long as I get my rights and and my focus and it's a very selfish way to live religious syncretism moral relativism we talked about entitled materialism the idea of spending our spirituality with that attitude of entitlement I get something I deserve something man when I walk in the door of that church they better wow me I better know when I walk out of there on Sunday that they've done something that entertained me or made me enjoy my time or I'm not going back there again Entitlement. I'm entitled to something. God, you owe me. We talked about last week that we're entitled to hell. That's about it. But what we get in Christ Jesus is not what we're entitled to. We get grace. We get mercy. We receive of His love. Ephesians 2, verse 3 says, We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, I don't like being the bearer of negativity. And I realize last week's study and this week's study and next week's study all have an air of of the negative. Because we're talking about the state of the world. The state of Israel in the times of the judges. But by comparison, the state of the world in which we live right now. And while there are a lot of good things, and the Holy Spirit is active and alive and working in the earth and working through the church. And we do have fellowship. And we do have encouragement. And we do have a living hope. And we have so much worth just praising the Lord for. The reality is... In light of all those things, there is still a darkness in the world in which we live. And the state of the world is not pretty. We are told that the Bible, it declares us that the last days will be very much like the days of the judges. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 says, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing... From whom you have learned them, Pastor Rick. No, it's not the person that you learned what you're learning from. Knowing from whom you have learned them, and that is from the Lord. From Jesus, from His Spirit, teaching us, showing us His Word. It is His Word that we cling to. It is His Word that we rely on and we trust. And Paul says, from childhood, you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, which tells us that even in the church there is need for correction. That even among brothers and sisters in Christ there is need for reproof. That there is a degree of of judgment, not condemning other people, But judging what's going on. You are to judge what is being taught. You are to judge what's coming down from up here. I only say down from up because I'm about six inches higher than you all are on the stage here. You are to judge and question. And study the scriptures which are inspired by God and profitable for such things. Paul goes even further, by the way, referring to the last days in which we live and his concern for sound doctrine and for teaching and stability in the church. He says that elders, shepherds, men who are leading in church fellowships have to be men who, Titus 1.9 tells us, are holding fast the faithful word. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that we will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And I have sat in our shepherds' meetings, and I listen and I watch and I see how much reference is made to the word, and how much time is spent there. As a matter of fact, our next meeting is coming up, and I ask you to pray for us. We're meeting on the 17th, I believe is the next one. And when we get together, we have some things, some last days issues to be talking about. About sound doctrine, and about deception, and about how as shepherds, and especially how as a fellowship, we're going to handle these things. As the bridge grows up, there's going to be more challenges that we face. There's going to be more outside influence of people saying, you should do this, or it should be this way, or it should be that way. And the responsibility, not only of the leaders, but of everybody is that we keep our eyes on the sound doctrine which is according to the word of God. So we're going to be spending some time in the word on the 17th. As we've done many times before. And I'm thankful for that. Anytime I personally start to get confused or worried or stressed out, not knowing what God is up to or how I'm supposed to handle a situation, God, I am so thankful for your word. Because I can at least go back there. When my hearing's a little out of whack, I can go back. And there's stability there. So we live in difficult times, and we live in the last days, and we live in times of deception, and we should expect that. By the way, good news, I know we're spending some time talking about some negative and some dark things, but before the month is out, we get to read a love story. Before we finish July, we are going to be in the book of Ruth. And what does that tell us, but that not only does judgment follow apostasy, but redemption follows apostasy. The apostasy of the book of Judges that we read and study and look at and are shocked by in many cases. As a matter of fact, come Wednesday night if you want the biggest shock of your life as to what's in the scripture. It's a a horrible story. But we go through this and it gets darker and darker and darker until you come to the end and you go, Man, what hope is there? And God puts the book of Ruth before us. The story of redemption. And it's a wonderful story. So that's coming up. So if you feel a little bit discouraged or it's a little heavy last week, this week, next week, that's okay. Ruth's coming. We're not going to go on ruthlessly. (laughs) Sorry. So our story this morning, it deals with a single tribe in Israel. Last week we dealt with a man, Micah, the Ephraimites. We dealt with him and his personal personal life, so we looked into the life of an individual, and kind of got a glimpse at the life of many individuals in Israel at the time by looking at this man. Now we move out to a broader picture to a tribe, the tribe of Dan. Next or Wednesday night, we'll move out to an even broader picture where we see this apostasy throughout all of Israel. That's horrific. But this morning, it's Dan. As we make our way through this story, I want to make some application, which I'll make at the end. Let's study down through the story, see what happens with the tribe of Dan, and we'll come back and apply it in the end. Verse 1, In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the Danites were seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in, for until that day an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. That's a bad translation. The word been allotted it is a bad translation what the word literally means there it says until that day an inheritance had not fallen to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel why is it a bad translation? because we know they had been allotted a piece of land The Lord had given them a piece of land, a very specific piece of land that was to be theirs. It hadn't fallen to them. They didn't have possession of it yet. In fact, if you go back to Joshua chapter 19, verses 40 through 46, and you can do that in your spare time, you'll find that Dan had been allotted a possession among all the tribes of Israel, a beautiful coastal land. To look at it on a map, it's kind of a a little backwards J shape. It begins right around the area of Tel Aviv today, running down through Joppa, along the seacoast between Ephraim to the north and Judah to the south. It was a lovely little piece of property. Small because Dan was small. And each of the allotments to the tribes of Israel was based on the size of the tribe. Ephraim, big tribe. So they're just kind of to the north and, and just west there of Dan. And Judah, massive tribe, right to the south. And Dan was sandwiched somewhat in between those two tribes. And it was a lovely region. In fact, when we go to Israel the first night, we stay there in Tel Aviv. You can walk out on the Mediterranean coast and walk down to Jaffa. And it's a beautiful little walk. And it's a a great place. And I remember thinking just this last time, looking out at the Mediterranean and thinking, why didn't Dan like this piece of land? This is beautiful. This is a place worth staying. I mean, it's it's tropical, it's lovely. But it wasn't enough for Dan. Dan decided to move their tribe. And so they moved it up to the northern region of Israel. And it's a place you can visit today, an archaeological dig that's, that's very famous, up there in the northern region called Tel Dan. And if you look on a Bible map in the back of your Bible, you'll see up at the top of Israel, you'll see a little dot and it says Dan. And it's kind of confusing because there's Dan's allotment that God gave them down in the south or about midway down, and then there's this little dot up in the north that says Dan, the city of Dan, tell Dan. Dan decided to move their tribe, the whole kit and taboodle of them, away from their allotment. Not because they hadn't been given land, but because they didn't like what they had been given. They had the Philistines to the south of them pressing up. They had they had the Amorites to the to the west of them pressing in And their allotment, obviously, as I said, it was smaller than some of the other allotments, and so they looked at it and and they began to compare themselves and look at what they had and say, "We don't like this. This is what we've been given. It's not what we want." And they were discontent, and so the trouble begins. Verse two. So the sons of Dan sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Eshtel, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said to them, "Go search the land." And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they lodged there. Oh, Micah, from chapter 17, our little idol-worshiping friend with his own personal priest and designer religion. This is where these guys stop off. And when they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice, and this may be the accent, of the young man. They recognized him to be a Levite, and it says, they turned aside there and they said to him, Who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? And he said to them, Well, thus and so has Micah done to me, and he has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, that we may know whether our way on which we are going will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The way, your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. And there is a problem here because they go to the wrong place to get God's approval. They didn't go to the tent of meeting to the high priest To ask him to use the Urim and the Thummim To seek the will of God To find out what God's will was for them No, instead they, they stop off at Micah's house To this blended designer priest This little boutique religion here on the way And they go up to this guy and ask him Hey, tell us, what do you think? Is it going to be good? Oh yeah, it'll be great, go for it So off they go It tells us the the five men, verse 7 Departed and came to Laish Which is also Lashem. Mentioned in another place, and saw the people who were living in it in security after the manner of the Zidonians, quiet and secure. For there was no ruler humiliating them for anything in the land, and they were far from the Zidonians and had no dealings with anyone, a quiet, peaceful little people living up there in the north of of Israel. And when they had come back to their brothers, Zorah and Eshiel, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. Will you sit still? Do not delay. Go to enter to possess the land. And when you enter, you will come to a secure people with a spacious land, for God has given it into your hand. Why do they know that? They don't. It's what they wanted. It's what Micah the priest, told them was okay, and so they make an assumption. God said it's all right. My pastor said so, so it must be okay. Thanks for playing. It says when you enter, you'll come to a secure people a spacious land. Verse ten: For God has given it into your hand, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. And that's true. It's beautiful up there. It's an absolutely lush location. Verse 11 says, Then from the family of the Danites, from Zorah and from Eshteril, 600 men armed with weapons of war set out. Yeah, because when you see a quiet and peaceful people, you want to arm yourself for war. They went up and camped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. Therefore they called that place Mahana-Dan, that means Camp Dan, to this place. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. What's going on here? Apparently the grass was greener on the other side of the Galilee. (laughs) They saw an opportunity to a better place, a place that they wanted to go. But let's be absolutely clear about this. God did not give this northern region to Dan. This is not of the Lord. They went and they took it. In fact, back in Joshua 19, it tells us in verse 47, the territory of the sons of Dan proceeded beyond them. Moved beyond what they were allotted, beyond what they were given. It says, for the sons of Dan went up and they fought with Lashem. That's the same group of people, the, the people of Laish, Lashem, same group. And they captured it and they struck it with the edge of the sword and possessed it and settled in it. And they called Lashem Dan after the name of Dan, their father. This people up here, and by the way, think about this: the people of Laish of the Zidonians. You recognize the fact that their name does not end in it. I point that out because there were seven nations living in the land that God gave to Israel, whose names ended in it, and the ites were supposed to be cleared out of the land. God says, "You go in there and you wipe them out. You don't leave any of them in there. You wipe out the idolatry, the paganism, the immorality. Get it out of the land." But in the list of the ites, you do not see this little people of Laish of Lashem you don't hear of the Zidonians included in this this people of peace were not a threat to Israel they were not of the group the Lord said to drive out with the go ahead of Micah's prosperity gospel these people they go and they prepare to take a portion that was not their inheritance from a people who were not their enemies verse 13 tells us they passed from there to the hill country of Ephraim and they came to the house of Micah And then the five men who went to spy out the country of Laish so now they're back at Micah's house. And they said to their kinsmen, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod and household idols and a graven image and a molten image? Now therefore, consider what you should do. What do they mean? Consider what you should do. They're enticing their brothers. They're saying, Hey... We met this guy, Micah, and he told us that we could go up and take this land. So he's behind us already, and he's got some things we might want to add into our religion. He's got some ideas that are interesting. He's got some idols that are worth involving in what we're doing. So that when we go up, we can have an idol go before us. And by the way, Micah's idols, it's entirely possible. There's some indications of this. His idols may have been held in a box that looked very much like the Ark of the Covenant. So, the tribe of Dan said, Hey, let's take our own little Ark up before us. Because we can take the Ark. Remember remember Jericho? When we marched around the city with the Ark and we won. Let's take these idols with us. And we'll have our God go with us. I still think they were probably believing in God, the Father, Jehovah God. But they wanted a representation of Him. Remember he said, Don't make any representations of me. Don't make anything that you think looks like me because you're going to be wrong. But they said, let's take it. Let's go. We'll go up and we'll fight. And so that's what they're doing. They're being enticed. Consider what you should do. Check it out. We can have gods go before us. And they can go and bring up our, our chances for prosperity. Verse 15 going on tells us they turned aside there and they came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah and they asked him of his welfare. How are you doing? Verse 16, the six hundred men armed with their weapons of war, who were of the sons of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Now the five men who went to spy out the land went up and entered there, and they took the graven image, and the ephod, and the household items, and the molten image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men armed for weapons of war. And it says when these went into Micah's house and took the graven images, the ephod, the household idols, and the molten image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said, be silent, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. It's better for you to be a priest to the house of one man. Is it better to be a priest for the house of one man, or to be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? And it tells us in verse 20, the priest's heart was glad. I'm getting a promotion. And it says he took the ephod and the household idols and the graven image and went among the people and they turned and departed and they put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. Now think about this priest. This tells us something here. He's being promoted from Micah's chapel to Church. You know, he's working in the household little church here of Micah but now for the entire tribe of Dan. And it tells us something of this priest and about where his heart beats. And it shows us that he's no more than nothing more than a hired gun. That he's more interested in his salary than he is in his Savior. And so he goes with Dan, and they turned and departed again. Verse 21, put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. And when they had gone some distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house assembled and overtook the sons of Dan. And it tells us they cried to the sons of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you've assembled together? And he said, You've taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and you've gone away, and what can I do besides? So how can you say to me, What's the matter with you? This is so amazing to me. This guy is now going out to rescue his God. (laughs) I mean, it's supposed to be the other way around, right? I mean, I need to be rescued by God. He doesn't need me to rescue Him. So he's going out to get his gods that he's made. And the sons of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, or else fierce men will fall upon you, and you'll lose your life with the lives of your household. And so the sons of Dan went on their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned around and went back to his house. And then it says they took what Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and they came to Laish to this quiet, secure, peaceful people they came to Laish the people quiet and secure and struck them with the edge of the sword and they burned the city with fire and there was no one to deliver them because it was far from Zidon and because they had no dealings with anyone and it was in the valley which is near Beth Rehob and they rebuilt the city and they lived in it Which raises a question. Who really should have been burned here? They kill everybody of Laish, this tribe of Dan. In a horrible slaughter. They burn the city. Raise it to the ground. And the reality is, gang, there's a biblical commandment to the Israelites for the burning of a city. There is a time when it is right for the people of Israel to burn a city. Want to know where it is? Look back in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. In verse 12, it reads the following. Deuteronomy 13, 12, if you hear, in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving to you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you, and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known, then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. And if it is true and the matter is established through that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of the city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, and all that it is that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword and then you shall gather together all its booty in the middle of its open square and burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God and it shall remain it shall be a ruin forever and never be rebuilt one command for the people of Israel to burn a city and the city had to be among them it had to be an Israelite city that had fallen to idolatry That was the only prescription God gave for the burning of a city. And it's interesting to me that Dan, this tribe that already had fallen into idolatry themselves, carrying their own idols up to war, chose to burn this city. Who are the idolaters here? Now I don't know much about the people of Laish Maybe they were into idol worship But they certainly weren't Israelites And the the command was not given by the Lord For Dan to go up and burn this city Dan should have been burned for what they were doing According to law They deserved that punishment And yet hypocritically they carry out the very punishment That should have been their own And it makes me pause to think That when we burn other people It's often indicative of our own sin When we attack others, when we affect on them certain punishments or judgments or attitudes, oftentimes it's the very punishment or judgment that really belongs right here. It's amazing how that works. We need to pause and consider where we are coming from. For the very thing that I become so self-righteous about is often the most glaring issue in my own life. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, Paul writes, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself. So that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For Paul says each one will bear his own load. You are responsible for yourself and not to pass judgment on another. The tribe of Dan passes judgment on the people of Laish, a judgment that should have been their own. Verse 29 says, They called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan their father, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. And the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And then Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. And so they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. And this becomes the historic legacy of Dan. It tells us, interesting, they burn the city, they take the city, they rebuild the city, and then the first thing they do is set up their idols. And Dan would be the first, and this is is the thing to know about Dan. In fact, when you hear the tribe of Dan, you see this throughout scripture, they are the first tribe, the first tribe in Israel to fall to idol worship. To become heavily engaged in and involved in idol worship. I mentioned that place Tel Dan in Israel today. What's interesting is when you go there you can see that Jeroboam placed a golden calf at the site of Tel Dan. You can see the place where the golden calf was set up. And all the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, would go either to Bethel or up to Dan to worship a golden calf. It was a perfect place because Dan was already so comfortable with idol worship. All of this, my friends, points to a single underlying issue with the people of Dan and the issue is discontent. That's where it started. They were not content with what the Lord had given them. It was a beautiful land. Sure, it was hard to hold. I mean, they had to deal with the Philistines and the Amorites and they must have just gotten tired of that. But regardless, they set apart. They walked away from, they moved away from the land that God had given them. They just didn't do it for them. Dan was discontent. And if that's not the state of the world we live in today, I'm not sure what is. No wonder the Britneys and the Lindsays and all these others have such messed up lives. The Parises. So much discontent. You can have the whole world. And Jesus says, But what does it profit you if you lose your soul? Discontent. I want to tell you some things by way of application about discontent that, that I think come up through this. And the first one is that discontent leads to designer faith. Discontent leads to designer faith. That religion we talked about last week, that blended religion in Micah's household has now been passed along to an entire tribe of people because they were discontent. They had the Torah. They knew God's laws, and they knew where it was all supposed to take place. They knew where they were supposed to meet with the Lord, and that's at Shiloh. And their original location was an easy 20-mile ride over to Shiloh. The new location in Dan was 80 plus miles of hard travel to get down to the tent of meeting, to get down to where the Lord said He would meet with them. They move further away, which is what discontent does. It draws us away from the Lord and away from the things that He is concerned with. And I wonder how far we can wander from the truth before truth begins to become unrecognizable to us. Where we're so used to relativity... But absolutes just are not recognizable we, we can't see them for what they are the reverend Ann Holmes Redding who I mentioned last week the episcopal priestess who announced that she was now both Christian Christian and Muslim and she's both and Russ handed me an article this last week and it says that she uh, she's now been taken out of circulation for the time being she's been kind of stripped of her post for a year to consider her position and then they'll decide they're going to reinstate her in a year And she said she was drawn to the Muslim faith After an introduction to Muslim prayers Left her profoundly moved I got something here That I wasn't really feeling here I didn't quite have the experience here But man here it was really cool So I I just I I added it in I just made it a part of I'm not rejecting this I'm just adding this I'm making it all part of the big picture Because this felt good I'm drawn to it She said Even after her removal Said Since entering Islam I have been By my own estimation A better teacher A better preacher And a better Christian Because you can't recognize What you've walked away from It's difficult to see the absolutes When you're living in the relativity And it's interesting That that is always how it begins It's always how it begins With false religions and cults Discontent Always is the start That's the beginning point Muhammad was discontent with the religions of his world And so he began a new one Joseph Smith was a man who was discontent with the state of the church When he started Mormonism Charles Russell was discontent with the church as well When he began the process that ended up being the Jehovah's Witnesses In fact, all the great deceptive cults have this one thing in common Discontent with the word that the Lord has already given It's not enough I need something else. John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. How can he say that? Because the phrase Antichrist simply means another Christ. Another Savior. Another way. Another option. And so John says, many of these have appeared, these false messiahs, these false teachers, who would lead you away from the one who can save you, and that is Jesus and Jesus alone. John says, they went out from us, indicating these were people who were believers, who became anti christ They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they would have been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. Which brings me to the next point, and that's that discontent leads to deception. Because once I start to be drawn away, I can now be so easily deceived. The number one converts to Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness in America today are evangelical Christians. Not non-believers of any faith. Not people who have no sense of direction. Christians who are looking for something more. And I know the Mormon church capitalizes on that. And false teachers and cults feed on those who are discontent with the church today. When we hunger for Jesus and experiences rather than hungering for Jesus' only righteousness, we are in danger of deception. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Paul writes, "...let no one deceive you with empty words." For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Try to learn, Paul says, what is pleasing to the Lord. Not what is pleasing to you. It's not what is pleasing to me. It's what's pleasing to the Lord. That's what counts. That's what matters. Romans 16, verse 17. Paul says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Now this does not mean... That in these last days, you and I are to live paranoid. But we are to live prayerfully. We're not to be those who are suspicious, but we are to be sober. And it's certainly not about being bigoted. It's about being biblical. And in all these things, there's a dramatic difference. Dan was neither prayerful. They went to a man, not to the Lord. They were not sober. They were not biblical. They were easily deceived by their own discontent. Discontent. By the way, speaking of deception in the tribe of Dan, listen to Jacob's prophecy for Dan. I've always found this interesting. Genesis 49, verse 17. Jacob, the old man, Israel, as he's on his deathbed, he's he's laying out the blessings over his sons, and each one of them are prophetic. And I've shared this before. Genesis 49 is one of the most prophecy-packed chapters in the entire Bible. Because as Jacob gives these blessings, he is prophesying what will happen and has happened and will happen in the future to all of the twelve tribes. But he says about Dan, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path, that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider falls backwards. Dan is called a serpent. Who else is referred to as a serpent in scripture? Satan is Revelation 12.9 says The great dragon was thrown down The serpent of old Who is called the devil and Satan Who deceives the whole world And there's an old rabbinical tradition That holds a false messiah Would come right up Out of the lineage of Dan And dang well You've got to pick up the Revelation study Because we talk about this in depth It is entirely likely, I'm not saying for sure, but likely that not only will the man Antichrist, when he rises, not only will he be of part Jewish descent, but he will come directly out of the tribe of Dan. Antichrist, the serpent in the way. How is that possible? A son of Israel, a tribe of Israel. How is it possible... That they could get to this point because discontent leads to this desire of faith, leads to deception. And Dan is a picture of that for us walking directly down that road. And as a matter of fact, in Revelation, during the tribulation period, when it tells us that the 12 tribes, there are, there's a number of people, 12,000 from each tribe, who are sealed and protected. Guess what tribe is not protected at that point? It's Dan. Possibly because of the idol worship and the depth to which they had fallen. But regardless of Dan's future, we do know something of their past, that their discontent not only led them to designer faith and deception, but ultimately and finally it led Dan to dispersion. In in 720 A.D., Dan had the exclusive distinction of being the first tribe of Israel to be carried away into captivity because of their idolatry. When the Lord allowed the Assyrians to come down and to brutally... Take Dan out. Putting fish hooks in their mouths. Drag, dragging them across the desert. And dispersing Dan into the world. Discontent leads to dispersion. Listen, they had a beautiful territory, Dan did. That little J-shaped area down there by Tel Aviv and Joppa. Beautiful place. But there's something more important to note about that. And again, if you look at a map, you can see this. They were sandwiched between two of the largest tribes of the Jews. Judah and Ephraim. They were sandwiched in that place Protected Safe Yeah there were the Philistines and the Amorites But their brothers The Ephraimites And the Judahites Were all right there To together Fight against and drive out Had they asked for that help They had the protection The support Of their brothers If they had sought that But they said We don't want to live here We want to live up there So they moved up north And guess what they were surrounded by Nothing They had no one nearby To protect them When the Assyrians came in, there was no other tribe there to give help. And so, boom, Dan was taken out immediately. Oh, we just want to live in a rural, cool, northern country. We don't want to have to stand and fight with our backs to the Mediterranean. And I wonder, Gabe, for you and for me, how far we can wander from the protection of Christian fellowship before we become vulnerable to attack. There is a reason we gather. There is a reason why we connect ...in a church fellowship like we do. Because like Dan in their original allotment... ...we now can be supported on all sides... ...by Christian brothers and sisters... ...who are also in the truth... ...who when we start to get a little bit off... and say, hey, hey, wait, 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 wait... ...stand on the truth... ...stick with us... ...we're going to make this through... ...okay, we're all, by the way, going to be deceived... ...we will all be deceived from time to time... ...but if we are standing with our brothers and sisters... ...rather than off in the north country somewhere we can be and will be protected. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 tells us, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Can I tell you something as a pastor? It's just something that I've noticed. I always know when someone's falling away because they're not here it never ceases to amaze me or surprise me when someone's been gone 6, eight, ten months and then they show up and, and they sit there and I haven't seen them in a long time and then they'll come up after the service and they'll say I just need prayer because I, I've fallen away and I'll pray with them but in my mind I'm thinking I knew that I knew that now listen I, I'm not into attendance especially not into attendance based judgment you know that's not the deal here if you can't be here next Sunday Okay We're going to be here And that's alright You might be on vacation Les is going to be on vacation You should be Go get some rest Stay away <laughs> Until you're <laughs> Until you're rested And ready to be here I mean that's okay It's not about lock stepping into place But it is about the protection That being a part of a fellowship And a family affords us We need each other Let me tell you something About my own faith walk I need you I need to be sandwiched in among the faithful among biblical believers in Jesus Christ who will hold me to account because I am as easily deceived as the next person it's why I stay in the word it's why we stay in prayer and it's why we need each other as a fellowship because discontent can draw us away into these places of deception and dispersion well here's the underlying issue with discontent it's pure selfishness that's what discontent really is it's just selfishness. I'm not getting what I want. And so I become discontent. And yet there is a prescription. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Discontent takes my eyes off of Jesus and puts my focus right here on me. It turns my eyes on my problems, on my inability to find satisfaction and fulfillment in my life. But Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But even spiritually speaking, if I'm discontent with where the Lord has me in my life, in this location, in my own maturity, if I'm looking at my own experience and saying I want more, and I'm not content with where I am and what the Lord's doing now, I will miss the blessing of today. I'm looking to what He's going to do tomorrow. And He's saying, but, but I'm right here now. It's like inviting all the family over On a Sunday afternoon for brunch together And you also are planning A a next Saturday meal together And you cannot enjoy That Sunday afternoon brunch together Because you're thinking about The next Saturday When you have to get together How silly is that? It's about right now And the Lord says I'm with you right now And I'm doing something very special Right here Today there's, There's great stuff coming But be content with where we are right now. Martha?
1: <laughs> Just be content.
0: Martha was serving, and, and don't get me wrong, in fact, sometimes we we kind of lay a thing on Martha that probably shouldn't be hers. I mean, she missed what was going on, but she was serving. She was doing good things. She was working out of her nature. But the Lord was there right, there, right then and right now, and, and He said, Martha, hey, I'll tell you what, let's leave the pots for a minute in the pans we'll clean them up later come sit down and don't miss what we're doing right now Paul says I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am I know how to get along with humble means I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry of having an abundance and suffering need I can do all things through him who strengthens me through Christ I can do it. Whether I've got a lot or I have a little, it doesn't matter. I am content knowing I am with Christ Jesus. Gang, one of the greatest signs of the presence of God's Spirit in your life is contentment. If you happen to be a person who is content, good chance the Holy Spirit is very much alive and at work in your heart. Contentment. Dan was Discontent. Again, verse 1 says, The Danites were seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. They had an inheritance. They had an allotment, but they were seeking one because they were discontent with where they were. It had not fallen to them because they were not willing to stand where the Lord had placed them. So let me ask you, are you struggling with discontent? Or are you content with the place that the Lord happens to have you right now? If you're struggling with discontent this morning And I prayed a lot about this And it was so amazing to me the, the answer that the Lord gave Here's the key Here's the key to get out of discontent And into contentment Are you ready for this? It's very powerful And it's very simple Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus says You shall love the Lord your God With all your heart And all your soul And all your mind This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And what's amazing here, gang, is if we're loving God, that is, worshiping Him, thinking about Him, looking to Him, guess where my eyes go? Off myself and to the Lord. And if I'm loving my neighbors by serving them and caring for them and looking to their needs, once again, my eyes come off of myself and go on to somebody else. Either my eyes are fixed on Jesus or my eyes are on what I can do to serve and care for other people. And it takes my eyes off of me. And some of you, you're sharp. You know where I'm going with this. It's agape love. It is agape love is the key. For us not being discontent, for us to enter into contentment, if we can learn this unconditional love of God, that our focus is always others and God centered and not on ourselves, and we will not have time to be discontent. Because we will be so content with what the Father's doing. And so content with how we're seeing Him work in other people's lives, not even realizing, by the way, it's us that He's working through. Dan missed it. But here's the good news. If you have been wallowing in discontent, if you have wandered into designer faith, if you have been deceived, or even if you feel dispersed, displaced, from the solid ground of the truth, let me read the last verse of the chapter again. Well, They set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made. But listen. All the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. And this is the first time in the book of Judges that the name of Shiloh is mentioned. For 18 chapters, we hear nothing of the Tent of Meeting, which is located in Shiloh, of the Ark of the Covenant, which is located in the Tent of the Meeting in Shiloh, of the High Priest, who is there serving, and the sacrifices that were to be given there, at the Tent of Meeting in Shiloh. But suddenly here, it slips in at the end of chapter 18, the chapter of discontent, the discontent of a tribe that had moved themselves away from Shiloh. The good news is this. Shiloh, which means place of rest, was still there all along. Dan had moved. Shiloh had not. Dan was discontent. Shiloh was still there. And for you and for me, if we are in that place of discontent in our lives or have been there or have struggled out of it, Shiloh's here. The place of rest is still here. Our Lord Jesus Christ. He is always available for anyone who is willing to come. So the answer is not, how do I get away from my discontent? I'm so discontent with my discontent. How do I move from this? The question is, are you willing to come to Jesus? Because in Jesus you will find perfect contentment. Let's pray together. Lord, You are so good to us. And I'm reminded even this morning as we worship how simple it is to find peace and contentment instantaneously when we look at You. When we pause for a moment and just thank You for what You've done in our lives. As we consider Your incredible love. And as we return that love to you, as we love other people, these things are just so simple, so foundational to our faith. And yet, Lord, as as we I think about Father, the the church in Ephesus that was so good at discerning and so good at, at, at fighting off deception and, and bad spirits, but but they lost their first love. And Lord, we want. We want both to be a discerning church but also to be a loving fellowship. And we ask that you would teach us as a family how to do both. To discern and to love. And I pray that you will teach us as individuals how to do both, Lord. To be wise and grounded in your truth. But absolutely loving towards you and our brothers and sisters in Christ, and Father loving toward a lost world. The Father made His fellowship never fall into discontent, but always be pleased and joyful with what you're doing today. And I pray that for today. That we would just have a great day in the Lord. And rediscover our contentment in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.